Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. back listeners we are back for episode 52 of plastic model mojo and joining me once again is my good friend dave how you doing dave doing good mike how are you doing uh i survived thanksgiving without gaining too much weight i think <laughs> but then uh at least in in america united states of america we know what happens usually the day after thanksgiving and it did we get to work our butts off hanging up christmas lights <laughs> yes all said and done it was a good time Agreed, agreed. Well, what is up in your model sphere? Well, actually, the, you know how I fear the dark time, that time between Thanksgiving and the New Year where my modeling tends to slow down. Now, it it hasn't happened yet uh, this year, which is a good sign. So my model sphere is, is, is energetic. And not only that, but... Uh, I'm starting to to put together a list of a few things that I'd like Santa to bring me. So uh, all in all, I'm I'm fired up. The juices are flowing. How about you? Well, I got on the uh, random number generator tonight and kicked out four winners for our one-man army, 132nd scale aircraft stencil set drawing. All right. So we should probably announce those, shouldn't we? This is the appropriate time to do so. Well, we'll start with uh, the third and fourth place winners who will be receiving the sample pack of the aircraft stencils. And those will be John Clausen of Nevada and our friend Danny uh, Saint Laurent in uh, Quebec City. All right. Up in Canada. So, guys, I'll reach out to you two and uh, get the shipping addresses we need and I'll get this off to you. Uh, second place goes to Michael Hegarty from Farmington Hills, Michigan, up there in Chrysler country. And uh, he will get the 32nd scale set not selected by our first place winner. And our first place winner is Mr. Ed Barrett from Los Angeles, California. You remember Ed? He's the yellow wing guy. We talked to at Nationals. I remember him. Ed Barrett, you're, you're the first place winner. I'll reach out to you and you can pick the 32nd scale set of your choice of the, well, the two we have anyway, uh, the Wildcat. Or the uh, or the Messerschmitt 109, and then uh, that'll set up Michael Haggerty from Farmington Hills to uh, get the other one, and then Danny and John will get those stencil sets out as soon as I get your information. So uh, once again, I want to thank Sven at One Man Army for sending those. He sent me way more than I thought he was going to, so it just made sense to pass it on to some folks who might give it a give a shot here sooner than later. If you want my bet, I'm betting Ed's going to take the Wildcat. Well, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad we did that. Other than that, that's my model sphere. Thinking about the show, and uh, I fixed a little uh, recording or a data recording issue we had, and the way I had the thing set up on uh, Apple Podcasts, but I think I got that worked out. Yeah, that's all the back end magic that that none of the listeners are interested in. That's right. As, l- so. as long as we drop an episode, they're happy. <laughs> Mike, uh, I assume you have a modeling fluid. I do have a modeling fluid, Dave. What is it? I will not disappoint. Uh, Well, I was down in East Tennessee uh, visiting the folks for Thanksgiving, and uh, there's a brewery down there, Johnson City Brewing Company, and they've opened a tap room that's literally like a mile and a half from my parents' house. Nice. Yeah, it's this old farmhouse, 
it's right under the the viaduct for the Clinchfield Railroad as it comes across Boone's Creek down there in Johnson City, Tennessee. And, and this house used to be well, it was a farmhouse, and it was a, a local artisan had their pottery business there. And now it's a tap tap room for a Johnson City Brewing Company. And I'm drinking their India Pale Ale, and it is titled Hapalo 13. <laughs> oh, you posted a picture of the can of that the other day. And I'll go. I'll, I'll go a little, a little bit further with it. We'll save it till the end, though. Uh, yeah. For, for the details, but uh, there's a little blurb on the can. A story behind every beer, and uh, I'll make quick with just the first sentence here. It's named because it was a near disaster the first time they brewed it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So like it's a, that. it's an India Pale Ale style beer, and I've got it in a nice glass here. So, what about you, man? What do you got? Well. I'm going to take our listeners and you back to 2003 when you and I attended the uh, nationals in Oklahoma City along with our, our wives. And just down from the convention was a place called Brew Works that had or claimed to have had 100 different beers on tap. And it was there that I first had a pear cider that I really liked called Ace Pear Cider from Ace Brewing out in California. I like ciders and Ace was Ace Pear was was the best I'd have ever tasted and I continue to drink it from time to time. Well, I was in the store Total Wine and they sell items by the can or bottle and they had Ace Mango cider and I haven't had it but having having tried the pear cider and then a couple of the other ciders uh, decided to give it a shot. So, what was that rattle up front? Sound like spray paint? No, the rattle was the little church key opener that I used to to open it. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's good. Very reminiscent of Ace Pear. So, I'll give you a report on on the back end, but things are looking good so far. All right. Well, me too. Mine's pretty good. But more on that later. You got it. The listener mail never ceases to cease, so I guess that's a good thing. Yes, that's that means somebody's listening. Somebody's listening. Thank God. Yep. Well, let's get into that. Up first is uh, Will Kurt, and Will is the webmaster for the Cincinnati Skill Modelers. And uh, Will just wanted to send us a thank you letter to thank us for supporting the show. We, we sent a little financial support to the Cincinnati show, and we're quite glad we did because we had a blast at that show. Absolutely. That was fantastic. When when do you get to sit at a, a model show at a vendor's table with your back to a faux wolf 190? <laughs> you know, not very often. Maybe if we go to that, Heritage Con, we'll get to do it. But uh, yep. I mean, it could have been a P40 or could have been a Mustang or whatever in that place. Could have been. It was cool. So, William, thank you. Uh, glad to sponsor the show. And uh, I got a feeling we'll probably do that again next year. I suspect we will. Thanks for having us. Michael Poland from Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, Michael was the gentleman who came up from Knoxville and uh, I met with the last time. We made a preliminary ma- announcement for the Knoxville Scale Modelers, uh, their invitational show, which was going yeah. to be on a, on a Sunday. Uh, he just wanted to tell us that they've, they've reconsidered that. And now they're looking at a, moving from, from that Sunday in March into May sometime. Tentatively, he's looking at May 14th, but they don't have a commitment, I guess, maybe from IPMS yet. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like it's our old date, but they're in a different region than us. 
Well, not only that, we've moved to the fall. So, so yeah, I was wondering, <laughs> I was thinking maybe that's why it opened up, but yeah. Well, Michael, keep us posted. Uh, if you're ever up this way again, give me a buzz and uh, we'll do it all over again. And man, I, if the show works out in May, I, I got a feeling we'll try to come. Oh, I definitely would like to come. I love, I love Knoxville. I love that area of Tennessee. So, uh, and it's an easy trip. Even uh, from Louisville, it's well, real it's, easy for you. Yeah, it's, it's two and a half from here, depending on where they have it in Knoxville. That's pretty, yep. pretty, pretty good average. Yeah, Louisville's the only show that's closer. Well, Cincinnati's a little closer than that. Yeah. But not much. Oh, Matt Dyer's written in again from uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and he was the one building the uh, Rolls-Royce armored car, which he's finished up and sent some nice pictures of. I need to post those. I really do. Yes. Yes, you do. I, I Listen, I love armored cars, man. And that Rolls Royce one is just attractive as all get out. Well, I've managed to not go down that rabbit hole just yet. So wish me luck. I feel the pull. <laughs> I really do. Uh, Matt says, Dave, here's a lawyer question for you. Maybe you have an answer. And Matt says he's a 99.999% retired lawyer, a member of the bar in Arizona, Maine, and New York. Uh, but no, uh, no real experience with the uh, literary property. And his question is, why do you often see on model airplane kit boxes some mention of the trademark and copyright ownership of the full scale original, e.g. Lockheed's statement on the Tamiya P-38 box and that sort of thing? Uh, he says he does not recall seeing similar on armor kits, but he's seen on like Mustangs and things like that. Yeah, 30,000 foot answer for that. Absolutely. Now, keep in mind, copy, copyright, trademark, and stuff is not my specialty. But because I've been in the hobby long enough, I do actually remember this. And we have Boeing to thank for this. Boeing started, uh, God, this was back sometime in the 1980s or 1990s. As the 90s, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Started assert, uh, asserting a copyright on not only the name Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, uh, but started asserting the copyright on the, on the design. Now, this outraged some people since Boeing got paid handsomely by the federal government for those items, and thus it seemed um, churlish, shall we say, to, for Boeing to go hitting up model manufacturers for royalty payments for the use of the of the name and the the name and the likeness and the design and there were some wranglings in the 90s in fact you'll find some interesting boxes and i i wish i could remember which ones where they stopped using the descriptor boeing and flying fortress and just used b17 but uh, Boeing was the first folks to assert it. I know the car manufacturers do it. And so the car kits actually also pay royalties to whatever manufacturer makes the full-size design. Now it is pretty much standard in the industry to pay a royalty fee to the prototype designer owner. On armor kits, obviously, you know, nobody's paying royalties on T-34s or Tigers. I would love to see Porsche assert a copyright. Uh, <laughs> probably not not looking to do that. I got a reason why they're not asserted on armor kits. Why? Because the companies at the time that Boeing asserted their copyright on 
we're in the United States and we're fair picking. Yes. There's nobody making Sherman tank kits in the United States. Yeah. So it's a whole lot dodgier proposition to try well, to go collect that, right? Right. Well, not only that, but the if you look at, say, Shermans or Jeeps, they were manufactured by multiple yes. companies. Okay. But sometimes the airplanes were too. Maybe not the P fifty one or the or the B seventeen, but cer- certainly several of the Navy planes were contracted out to multiple manufacturers. Right. There's the FM twos, uh, which were the Ford built Wildcats, and then you've got uh, Goodyear and and Chance Vaught both building the uh, or Vaught building the uh, Corsair. Yeah, I suspect that with arm with armor, at least American armor, one of the reasons may be that. The designs are government owned and they were manufactured by multiple companies. So it's not like it's the General Motors Sherman or the Maytag Thunderbolt or whatever. Right. So I think there's less of a of a of copyright or trademark claim there. But you in short, the reason is in, in the nineteen nineties, Boeing hungry for every dollar they could scrape, managed to start doing that. And now it's a fairly common practice. I wonder how much money they're really getting. I cannot imagine that it's that much <laughs> money in the scheme of things, especially for a company like Boeing. But, you know, they every, you know, every penny counts to a lot of those companies. Yeah, at certain times in their existence, more than others, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I don't know if we... That was kind of a high level answer, I guess. But uh, yes, I, I'm no expert. I've commented on this before. There are a whole lot of modelers who are attorneys. We seem to be overrepresented in the hobby, and I'm not a hundred percent sure why, but it just uh, does seem to be that way. And maybe if one of the attorneys out there is a trademark and copyright expert, they can they can comment more on that particular subject. All right. Well, let's move on, Dave. All right. Uh, Stephen Schaefer from the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, so Minneapolis-St. Paul. And I guess he heard us in 50 or 51 talking about female modelers. Yeah. And he said Wonderfest, like we said, is absolutely one of the places you'll find women doing amazing work. And he brings up a point that I should have remembered because I saw this display the last time I went to Asia and – no, that's not the airport it's at. I was thinking it was in the Minneapolis St. Paul, their main airport. But this is a this is a Fleming Field airport. That may be a smaller airport. Anyway, my point is, he brought up Michelle Coquette. You remember her? Back in the 90s, she did the scratch-built Hustler that was in fine scale. Oh, yes, I do. And the A10 and all that stuff. Yep, you're right. Well, I remember. Unfortunately, he says she passed away in 1998, but uh she used to build all these 30-second scale jets, a lot of them from scratch. I don't know. There weren't that many kits right then. But anyway, a display of her work in the magazine article and stuff are at the uh, South St. Paul Airport Fleming Field. So there you go. A, a very uh, a very accomplished female modeler. Exactly. exactly. And I'm sure there are more out there. And any of you out there listening, we'd love to hear from you. As soon as I saw the cover photograph in his email, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> forgot all about that you're you're getting older it's understandable yeah i know i'm behind you though Uh, yeah that's right (laughs) 
<laughs> the Grim Reaper's going to get me first, man. Well, all things equal. We'll see. Yeah, you might fall off a ladder while you're putting up Christmas lights or taking them down. I'm done now. So, yeah, maybe taking them down. Oh, John Charvat appreciates the shout out. And uh, he says he knew you are a bit hesitant on the next weathering steps on your M30 howitzer. Uh, but wanted to push you along uh, with the chipping and staining, et cetera. Uh, I appreciate his shove because I needed it. And he says, great listen to us because uh, we bring back memories of the early 2000s trips to well, the MMCL and our our, our, our amps, our big oh, amps man. trip to get with him and Pete. Now, that was a big time there. That was that, fun. That was awesome. That probably was probably, the, probably one, of the better, one of the better amps trips of all of them. Yeah. And uh, he's retired from the army now. Been been so for a while. He and his wife both. So congratulations on that. So he's got a suggestion for us, but I'm going to kind of keep that one under the cuff. All right. We'll talk about that one later. Uh, he he does say that all our uh, yammering about Las Vegas has him uh, wanting to attend Omaha. So we may see him. Oh, it would be good to see him at the nationals. We might even buy him a beer. We might might buy us one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh, next up from uh, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, is David Bridges, and he is responding to, uh, well, it was Danny St. Laurent up in Quebec, one of our prize winners, was asking about uh, Zimmerit last time, right? Yep. David uses uh, Ave's epoxy sculpt, which is a two-part epoxy putty, and he uses trumpeters, uh, rollers, and dies to make the pattern, and he sent some photographs of his work, and... uh, Looks pretty darn good. I'll tell you what, that's a skill, man. Now, he's got a Facebook page, DB Scale Model Studio on Facebook, and uh, there's some uh, information there on on his techniques and some of his in-process shots. So Danny and all those pe- folks out there wanting to do Zimmerit and looking for a way to do it, Dave's got a way, way to do it, and he does a nice, neat, clean job, so go have a look. It looks easy. Probably not. <laughs> Hey, if it looks easy, it's hard. And if it looks hard, it's damn near impossible. (laughs) Have you ever done any Zimmer? Only the, only using the Cavalier sheet. I have never done, because I don't do much armor or have it in the past done much armor. So I've never had call to except for on one Tiger one. And I use those Cavalier sheets. Steve Wallace is next from uh, Sydney, Australia. And uh, he likes listening to us while he's working out at the gym. Yeah, well, it's getting nice and warm down there as opposed to here. So I uh, hope he's enjoying his spring coming into summer. Well, he's a new airbrusher and uh, he likes all the inside word he's getting from Dr. Strangebrush. So we like getting feedback on those because we, we want to keep him around. Yep, absolutely. We'll have him back on soon. So keep listening. And yes, uh, every time every time we, we talk with John, I learn new things and I've been airbrushing 30 plus years. And finally, Mr. Preston Culp, and he's from Wichita, Kansas, and he's looking forward to seeing us in Omaha as well. We're looking forward to seeing him. We got a lot of listeners saying they're going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his modeling fluid is gin, Bombay Sapphire, in fact, and a little splice Good of seven. Choice. Up. Now, I told him he needed to try Hendrix. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the la- the last one, I new gin I tried that I really liked was aviation gin. I've had that. Yeah, it's pretty darn good. Very smooth. Well, Mike, I've got one final one. This isn't traditional email. It was on our Facebook Messenger. I was contacted by, or we were contacted by a listener named Jonathan Friedland. And I don't know where Jonathan, oh, wait a minute, Toronto, Canada. And he talked about 
what you do to with your air booth and your model room to try and avoid getting hairs and dust in your paint jobs. Uh, he has a dedicated model room like I do, and he's got an air booth and he uses it. And, you know, he says, like all of us, he works hard, fairly hard to try and keep the, the room clean and dust, dust free. But, you know, he still has a problem when he's done with an airbrushing job. It dries. He goes back and looks and there's a hair in it or a, a, a fleck of dust or something. And he asked what we did. I've got two things that I recommended to him, but I mean, I feel his pain. It happens to me uh, quite often. So I'd like to hear what the listeners say. Uh, The two things that I did to lessen the hair and dust in my model room. One, I got a, they make like a weather strip for the bottom of your door that puts on that basically is a, a rubber seal so that it keeps dust and stuff from migrating into my model room from under the door. And you pick those up very cheap, like six, ten dollars at any Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever. And I put that on the on the bottom of my door. And then the other thing I got was I have a room air cleaner with an air filter. And what I do I don't run it while I'm airbrushing or while I'm using the air booth, but I run it when I'm not. And what that tries to do is clean the air in the room to take out some of the bigger hairs and particles of dust. I don't think you can ever eliminate it completely. And while it's a pain in the butt, I think that what many really great modelers do is accept that that's going to happen. And then they examine their, their, model when they finished painting it before they move on and see where the dust and hair is. And then they go back and sand it out and, and spot spray to repair that. Inevitably, you're going to have to do that sometime. But I think if you take the steps uh, like wiping down your air booth regularly with, uh, uh, with a cloth or a rag soaked in, in thinner, and using an air filter and putting a, a barrier at the bottom of your door, I think you can help cut down on it. But I'd like to know what uh, other listeners do. So, you know, if anybody out there has other suggestions, uh, I'd love to hear from you, and we'll pass them along to Jonathan and all the listeners. Well, I, I can empathize because, you know, it's it's uh, good to let your air booth run after you're done spraying just to keep the – as the paint's – flashing off to suck all those fumes out of the out of the house but all that airflow coming out of the room is is coming over the model right yes yeah but what I, i'll tell you one other thing i forgot to mention that i do uh and now this only works if it if it is the right size but uh i have one of those cake containers you know like rubbermaid cake covers and what i do as soon as i'm finished done painting the model I put the cake cover over it so that that keeps other other dust that might be floating around because it's been stirred up by your air booth or your airbrushing from landing on the model and sticking while the paint is flashing off and drying. So that's something else you can do. Or if there's a way to beat this with science with some electrostatic something, I don't know. Somebody let us know. <laughs> yeah. All you listeners out there, let us know. 
It's probably something stupid we're doing. Probably. And I, <laughs> that's what we're here to do is learn, man. <laughs> well, that should wrap up listener mail. Uh, we'd like to hear from you and want to know where you're from. So you can send us an email at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. Or like uh, the last listener did, you can uh, approach us through the Facebook Messenger. And sometimes we get some good conversations there. Yep, absolutely. This is the point in uh, the episode where I ask, as always, if you would take a moment when you're done listening to this episode to go to your uh, podcast app of choice, iTunes, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever. Give us a a rating. Rate us five stars. We'd appreciate it. It helps us uh, be more recognized in the algorithm and gets us viewed by more people. The other thing I'd ask you to do is if you've got a friend who isn't listening to modeling podcasts, you know, some modeler out there that uh, that you're friends with and you interact with that isn't listening, please give us a recommendation. Help them uh, find our podcast and start listening because uh, a recommendation from a current listener is the best way for us to gain new listeners. We'd appreciate it. Once you find us, or any of the other podcasts, we've made it easy to find them all now. Uh, you can go to modelpodcast.com. It's a consortium website we've set up to let you go to a single repository to find all the scale modeling podcasts who, who have elected to participate in that endeavor. So please go check that out. Go give the other shows a listen. There's a lot of great shows out there, a lot of great content. We'll keep your ears occupied for a long time between episodes of our show or any of the others. So keep that up. Uh, We've also got several blog and YouTube friends out there we like to endorse because we like their content. Uh, First up is Mr. Stephen Lee with Sprue Pie with Frets. Now, he's got a nice blog out there. Got a lot of good content you can read. Man, he has been producing left and right lately and some real gems, too. Uh, That's for sure. Yeah, so check out Stephen's blog, Sprue Pie with Frets. Also, check out Chris Wallace, model airplane maker. He's got a blog and a YouTube channel. Again, great content. Chris's uh, YouTube videos keep getting better. Lots of yep. good stuff for the airplane guys. I watched one the other night that was, uh, he built the Phoenix from Battle of the Planets. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was fun. We've also got Jeff Groves, the NCHI guy and all things 72nd scale. Please check out his blog, especially if you're into 72nd scale, because he's a pretty prolific builder and he's got lots of stuff going on all the time. Yep. And if you're not a 72nd scale builder, you should be. (laughs) I'm trying, man. I know. That Paul's coming back out. It is. Uh, Finally, Jim Bates, Scale Canadian TV. Please check out his video blog on YouTube and uh, see what he's musing about in his latest episode. Yep, yep, and he now has a he now has a co-host by the name of Cornbread, so that's good news. Uh, finally, if you're not a member of IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, or your local national IPMS chapter, please consider joining the IPMS national chapters. Do a lot to assist and grow modeling and help with uh, local chapters. So if you're not a member, please consider joining. The The annual dues are fairly inexpensive in most countries. Uh, you get usually some sort of modeling publication. In the U.S., it's the Journal. In Canada, it's RT and Beaver Tales. I highly recommend those publications. So it's money well spent. 
All right. Well, Dave, let's take a break here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. All right, Dave, we're back, and it's a wagon's hoe for Omaha. Yeehaw! At the time of this recording, it is 232 days until the 2022 IPMS National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska. I finally got on the phone with Scott Hackney. Yeah. And we had a nice little conversation yesterday. And uh, we're set up now to get biweekly dumps from him on all things going on with the show as we as we run up. And we're going to have him on a couple of times between now and uh, showtime. Uh, in the interim, we want to mention that the, the website is active ipmsusa2022.com. And one thing we talked about is is they they used a template from a past nationals to flesh that out and get that going. And yeah. there's a couple of things on there that aren't active yet. And it may, it confused me. So I asked Scott about it. Like right now there's reference to uh, the, the IPMS shopping cart for like mm-hmm. t-shirts and trophy sponsorships, things like that. Those links actually aren't active yet. So those things will become active in February when uh, the registration opens. That doesn't seem like a lot of lead time, you know, but uh, they, this is a, what, it's their third or fourth show. So Yes, the, uh, and that is, I'm sure, having done it in 2017 and 20, 2011, 2014, and 2017, uh, that's probably why they had that template laying around from the last time they did the Nationals. So that's going to get fleshed out going forward. Some of those things aren't available yet. They'll be available once registration starts, you know, the t-shirt ordering and, uh, well, and there's also the tours and things like that down. There are right. two tours that he's mentioned that are already, already confirmed. And those tickets will go on sale for those, uh, when the reg- when the registration opens as well. Uh, one is the speed museum there in Omaha. And, uh, the speed museum is basically, well, it's largely automotive, uh, but all things fast. He says it's a really interesting museum with a lot of great displays. So folks might want to look up the Speed Museum there in Omaha and uh, get a feel for what that's all about. And then the one he wants folks to be aware of when registration opens to be thinking about is the night, the night at the museum at the uh, SAC Museum. Oh, that, that may be one I have to bite on. I'm well, telling you what. This night at the museum, for those who don't know, is an after hours ropes off kind of affair and there's only 200 seats available for this thing so that's not a lot so if you think that's kind of thing you're interested in now you can go to the sack museum while you're there during normal operation and go see the museum uh if you want to do this uh no ropes kind of after hours tour you're going to need to get a ticket for that and there's only going to be 200 available and those are going to become available when registration opens in in, uh, february yeah, I remember Dayton in 1988 when the U.S. Air Force Museum did the same thing, an after-hours uh, Friday night ropes-down tour, and I'm telling you, it was one of the highlights of of my experience going to nationals, so I, I got to say, I'm, I'm inclined to do that. So again, registration opens on February 1st, 2022, so you got a little time to think about this stuff, but uh, mark it on your calendar so you can get in on everything as soon as it's available. Yep. You definitely want to register early. Speaking of availability, both the primary convention hotels are are long sold out at this point. Uh, But 
There are some others that are very close by. So I, you know, get on Google Maps and find out those other close by hotels and uh, get yourself a room and get to Omaha in 2022. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dave, it's time for the uh, Benchtop Halftime Report, sponsored by Tagit Z, our good friend Ed. Tagit Z is the must-have tools for the model maker. You can go to tagitz.com for an interesting selection of tools and accessories for your workbench. And for a limited time until January 15th, Plastic Model Mojo podcast listeners and subscribers can enjoy 20% off their entire order. So you can get that discount by using the discount code PMM at checkout. So that's what Ed's doing for us. Please check out TacketZ at TacketZ.com. That's great. We've got our own checkout code. That's that's cool. <laughs> well, what you working on, Dave? Well, uh, Mike, uh, the Mosquito is painted, decal, gloss coated. I did the upper surface pin wash. Now all I've got to do is the lower surface pin wash and then some other uh, weathering with um, with the airbrush. And then at that point, I will attach the canopy, the masked canopy, do the gloss and paint the canopy, put it on, then finally give it the final coat, do some pencil chipping, and I'll declare this one done. It is quite possible that I will finish this one by the end of the year. So fingers crossed, it's it's on its way. <laughs> the M30, I thanks to John Charvat's kick in the butt, I painted the breach. I've started painting the other small details that I needed to paint before I dive into the chipping. Then I've just got to, once I, once I do the chipping, it's a little bit of mud, a little bit of dust, and that one's done. Put it on a base and call it a call it a day. I don't think I'll be done with it by the end of the year, but that one could get me an early start in January. And on that front, you know, I, I sat there for almost six months not doing anything on that because I was afraid of the chipping step. And I do not know why it did not occur to me to do this until like a week or two ago. But I had sitting in my shelf of doom, an old Tamiya KV-1 that was about halfway built that I probably will never finish, but I had a completed turret in there. So we talk about using paint mules all the time. If I'm a little bit afraid of chipping, having never done it before, why not pull this turret out, paint it up in that 4BO green, and practice chipping on it? So that's what I've done. Pulled it out. I primed it. I painted painted it with the same green that's on the on the M30 howitzer, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try some chipping techniques on it. And you know what? I'm gonna if if they don't work out, who cares? It's a paint mule, and I'm gonna s- experiment and see what works and what doesn't work for me, and go from there. Well, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Yep, it actually is. I'm just ashamed it took me six months to think of it. <laughs> no, seriously. Did I, you find? Did you find it cleaning up? No, I, I, it's been. It's on the shelf of doom. I knew exactly where it was, but it was just like somebody suddenly hit me in the back of the head, and it's like, well, why don't you practice on something? And I initially was thinking, well, you know, you can just take some plastic card and paint it four bo green. And then it was like, why do that? You've got a KV-1 sitting over there that's that's been half-built for almost 15, 20 years. 
So I went went and pulled it out. Well, in fact, last time you were here, I showed you the the uh, model casting tracks that I got assembled and painted for it, and sitting in a box. Yep. What else you got? You got, you got another project in there somewhere. Well, the TU one twenty eight is kind of kind of stationary for the moment while I've been moving ahead on these other ones, but uh, uh, it's going to get back moving. And uh, if I am lucky by Omaha, I will have several new models to take and enter at Omaha. And since we're driving, that's going to be much more doable. I imagine so. Hope I get there. I don't know. What's your bench top look like? Well, the ammo boxes and ammo are done. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Folks are tired of it. I'm tired of talking about it. They're your, their own little models. That's right. But, you know, I've got to move on. So now plan is to show this thing in its emplacement, but like just abandoned. Like they, the crew was either captured or chased Ran away. Ran away. Right? Yeah. So um, in addition to the ammunition, I've, I'm, I'm working up a mental list of what other discarded equipment I want to have scattered around the, the emplacement, you know, an entrenching tool or shovel, some headgear. Well, uh, I was going to, that, that I was going to ask you, especially since you're, you're a Soviet world war II helmet expert, were anti-tank crews equipped with hard helmets or soft caps or both? Well, both everybody has soft cap and just about everybody had a helmet too. Now there's a lot okay. of mythology about them not liking to wear any helmets, thinking they weren't, masculine to wear a helmet but <laughs> i think you see somebody get their head cantaloped who wasn't wearing a helmet and you'd be looking for one pretty quick absolutely so i, I don't buy that but anyway noel from the club's got some uh resin helmets that have the liners in them which are the ones i want and he's offered to get those off to me at some point and so i got those coming uh i'm going through all my figure sets and trying to find a couple of really nice Mosin Nagant rifles uh i found a few and some photo etch slings i didn't know i had for those so that raises another question for me were the were the anti-tank crews also armed with rifles yes okay typically rifles and then uh later in the war they came out with a shortened carbine version of the Mosin Nagant that was issued to artillery crews oh okay largely just a shorter shorter rifle but uh and some other things uh, another thing i want to do is uh, you see a lot in well not a lot but uh, occasionally in german wartime snapshots of discarded equipment you'll see these discarded gas masks where the the bags open on the ground and the mask is hanging out and that funky corrugated hose is exposed i'd really mm-hmm. like one of those on there i gotta figure out how i'm gonna do that corrugated hose is actually the easy part yeah maybe you know what you use? You take a burned out incandescent light bulb, wrap it, wrap it in a towel. No, it's it's not a spiral. It's just uh, it's a. I'll, I'll have to send you a picture. <laughs> but it's not it's not like one of those spiral hoses. No, 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 no. It's not like an okay. air hose. Not like that. Oh, okay. But that would have been a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm probably going to model it up in CAD and print it. Print the hose. There you go. Soon to be available on PMM product. Sculpt the mask out of epoxy putty because it's pretty simple. Um, and then a bag, I can just hollow out a bag in one of my figure sets or something like that. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. Raises one other question for me. Sure. Did the Soviets have anything equivalent to the C ration 
And did they come in boxes or cardboard? You know, you you see with dioramas all the time boxes of uh, American sea rations or or stuff like that. Was there a Soviet equivalent, or did they eat just from the from the field kitchens, and there wasn't any sort of regularized, pre-prepared food? There were several different types of canned meats that were issued to the Red Army. In fact, we supplied a lot of processed meat, canned meat, to the Red Army. In fact, I've got an original crate from one of those shipments. You're kidding. In my collection. No, I'm not kidding. And the empty cans come up every now and then for, for sale. But but anyway, uh, they did it was a both it was a, a, a mixture of, of issued canned items and foraging. And it, and it was kind of ge- geographically dependent too. Like uh, the Southern armies might in the kind of in the Ukraine area might, might've gotten a sunflower seed ration. Gotcha. Something like that. Um, I don't know how the stuff was issued. I, they, I don't think they had complete meals like the, the army, our army, United States army was issued. Yeah. So I really don't have a complete answer to that, but yeah, there's, there's some canned goods and things like that. That's an interesting question. Yeah. See, you can put some, cans around are you going to have is anywhere on the on the base going to be a shell hole just want to know no it's not big enough okay because you see those all the time in diorama bases so yeah, i just I wondered if we were going to get a shell shell hole or a tree stump no neither one of those okay <laughs> you're avoiding the cliches then i'm avoiding the cliches i guess other than that i'm working on the musaru cup Gundam project. I've got a little bit more done on it since last time. Not much. I almost took it with me on Thanksgiving, thinking I'd have time to do it, but that had been a disaster. So, yeah, that, yeah, that never. Out. It's like when I take st- the only thing I've learned now when I go on vacation is that I can take books to read and I can actually do some reading. But if I take a kit to do anything, it just nothing gets done. Other than that, I haven't done a lot, Dave. I'm. Dave Goldfinch was talking about his drought over the last few weeks. Yeah, I was listening to that. I'm starting to feel it. Yeah. I've, da- I've, I've dabbled a little bit. And my, my yearly progress is pretty bad, but uh, I'm having fun, though. So, Well, that's the, that's the important thing. If you're enjoying it. Well, and again, not to not to bring up the, the, cra- the shell crates again and all, but those were the way you approached them, little models of their own. And I think the, the the final product shows that. Well, there is one other thing I, I was doing. I got some of that DOS air dry clay. Oh, that's, okay. That's being used by some of our YouTube uh, superstars. And I, I like it. I, I I did some, I made up some tests on foam. Some I, I used the same, uh, that Vallejo textured earth stuff yeah. on the foam. And that's been dry for weeks. And I, I'm gone back over it with this clay. Boy, that stuff really bites on, into that that Vallejo textured earth, and I don't think it's going to come off. My fear was it's going to come off at some point. It's just going to flake off. But yeah, I I think I'm good. I think it's going to be all right. So soon, I don't know when, but soon I'll be starting to work on the groundwork some more for the for the Zis gun emplacement. That brings up one last question in regard to that: Are you going to use any of the products out there, the like the paper sunflowers or paper plants and weeds, you see these pre-printed, pre-die cut or laser cut or whatever they are, pre-colored plants. And you see a lot of them advertised. And I just wondered because I've never, I've never had any experience with them. I don't know. I've got some of that stuff. I have to dig it out and find it, but uh, it's possible. Who knows? 
good. Listen, learning new stuff. Well, hopefully next time uh, we'll have a little bit more to report. That wasn't bad, though. That wasn't terrible. I I didn't get skunked. No, no, you are making some progress. There's no question about it. Now, uh, Mike, uh, since we last talked, there have been some uh, modeling announcements. Uh, Have any of them attracted your attention? Oh, yeah. So give me a couple of faves and maybe a yawn. Well, I think one of my faves last time was the Tamiya M18 Hellcat. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Well, they've announced a KV-2 now. Yes, I saw that. A refresh of their KV-2 kit, a, a new one based on the new new tooled hull. Yeah, that one's that's a definitely get a go-get for me. Well, there's so many great pictures of those things knocked out all over the place. And, I mean, that was, I think, the featured item in German World War II individual soldier snapshots. Anytime they came by a KV-2 knocked out, they had to take a picture with it. What's interesting about that, though, is there really weren't that many of those tanks. So when you dig through all the photographic material that's out there, you get many shots of the same vehicle. Sure. Because they were at, you know, crossroads, major traffic points. Right. Major rail connections. Think, you know, they were defending valuable targets a lot of times. And you just get lots of photo- photos of the same stinking vehicle. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited about that one. What's your first one? Well, um, company IBG has announced that they are doing the Focke-Wulf 190D family, the D9, D11, D13, D15, with all of the variations that you saw at the end of the war uh, because of, of course, the fracturing German manufacturing process. You saw a lot of these aircraft with a lot of different mix-and-match items, and they are saying that they're going to provide all of those as options. So we've really needed a new Focke-Wulf 190D in 72nd scale. It is, to me, the coolest version of the Focke-Wulf 190. I'm definitely interested, and the renders so far look really great. Yeah, I agree. I'll probably have one of those, I'm sure. At least one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now that we've got you into 72nd scale. So you got another? Well, we joked with Evan last time that uh, by the time we dropped that episode, there'd be more Stug kits. <laughs> yes, and it was the day <laughs> after we recorded. As luck would have it, I guess Mini Art—they've uh, got another uh, with a Sturmhaut bits of the 105 millimeter gun armed one. Yeah, it was announced the, the day after <laughs> we recorded that episode. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to see that line keep growing. I'm with Evan though. I. I Maybe they'll back up and do some of the earlier marks. It's because everybody's doing G's right now. At some point, these things, I don't know if you've noticed the boxes and how specific they are getting with, you know, uh, Stug whatever, mid-production, April-May 1943 or 44. I swear we're going to see a box someday that says Tiger 1, Late mid production, manufactured on June fourteenth, nineteen forty four, between three and five p.m. 
Or before lunch, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or before lunch. And then there's the after lunch modification, which is completely different. I mean, it's gotten kind of crazy. You got another one? Yes, I do. And this is both specific and general. Quinta Studios has uh, announced a set of 3D decals for the Fine Molds brand new F4E and F4EJ. I'm interested in that specifically, but more generally, I'm interested to get my hands on some of these Quintus Studio 3D interior decals and try them out. The people that I've I've heard from that have done so give them very good reviews and they look in the in the photos that I've seen, they look pretty spectacular. But I'd kind of like to I'd kind of like to get my hands on a set and try them out for myself. Well, Chris at Model Airplane Maker, one of his videos deals with the, uh, yep. is, is it his, his high-end helicopter in 48? Yes. Scale? Yep. And that's one of the things that inspired me to become more interested in these and give them a try myself. Well, I'm interested in the one for the Fine Molds Phantom because uh, yeah. well, I got to find one of those yet. Yeah, uh, me too. So you got another one, Mike, or a yawn? My yawn. Well, no, I've got another one. Okay. In 72nd scale, but on the armor front, uh, Vespid Models has got some more Panthers. I, I want to check one of those out. Yeah. They've got a steel wheel G now. I, You know, some of these 72nd scale armor kits are getting pretty intense. Yes, they are. I think it is the blossoming area of modeling, in my opinion, right now. 72nd scale armor is just suddenly going crazy well, no, model collect i think has that king tiger i know i want that one yeah and i may get one of these panther g's pretty neat stuff yep you got another one you got a yawn yeah mike i've got another one that i'm interested in and i'm particularly interested if any of the listeners have any experience with this company there's a company called profi modeler p-r-o-f-i modeler and they've announced in 72nd scale an Imperial Japanese Army rolled roller. This is a, a steamroller, a, <laughs> a World War II or pre-World War II steamroller that you would see particularly when they were making airfields. You know, they take crushed coral and then oh, run yeah. a steamroller over it. So, you know, you saw it a lot in the Pacific Theater on islands. Uh, you would see it a lot when in pictures when... Uh, the islands had been taken by the Americans, and there'd be a derelict one sitting off to the side of an airfield or whatever. And it's just a great little detail that would go really well on a diorama somewhere. Uh, but I know nothing about the company. I know nothing about their prior products. If anybody out there does, has any experience with them, please let me know, because I'm I'm actually interested in that one. Well, what about the yawns, Dave? I'm sure we got some yawns. Yeah, you got a yawn? I do. Okay, give it to me. It is uh, Mini Art Sheep. <laughs> and I was talking to Jim Bates today, and I thought of Mini Art Sheep was something I definitely wanted because I could finally do my Afghanistan diorama. Oh, that, no, nah, they're pretty useful. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> not not for me, probably, because I don't build a lot of dioramas, but uh, it's just interesting the things they keep piling on, man. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's amazing. And... Yeah. And, you know, again, I can see those being useful, but yeah, not, not exactly my cup of tea. Well, here's an idea. One of us could get a set of them 
And for the uh, the humor and modeling category in Omaha, we could paint half of them red and half of them blue, and put them on a map of the United States. <laughs> how how yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, I'm, not, I'm I'm not go, I'm not going there. Not not going there at all. But uh, yeah, I'm sure. Again, just like the pigeons, I'm sure we will see somebody do a diorama with those sheep, and it'll be fantastic. Well, in in a little more seriousness, uh, the sheep one I don't think is too bad. I think that will get a lot a lot of use. You know, Dragon keeps burping out these smart kits again as rehash. Man, they're expensive. Yep. So I, I'm just at a loss as to what they got going on. I, you know, although I guess they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't selling them. I guess. But God, half the crap. Well, I don't know. They they make a lot of kits. They've made a lot of kits. Yeah. I, I just wonder where it's going to go. You got a yawn, Dave? Yes, I do. And this one may this one may anger some listeners, but it just it not of particular interest to me. Uh, Micromir announced in seventy second scale a kit of the De Havilland DH one hundred eight Swallow. And what the DH one hundred eight Swallow was was uh, De Havilland's attempt to build an aircraft that would be able to break the sound barrier. And uh, I think Joffrey de Havilland was actually killed in one making the attempt. I think it was Joffrey de Havilland. There's, in fact, it's even depicted in a movie, and I forget what the name of the movie was. It's a, it's an aircraft of historical importance, particularly in British aviation, and I'm sure there are modelers out there who do those subjects who are excited about it. It just it of of little or no interest to me. Well, for me, I don't I don't know. There's been a lot of a lot of cool stuff announced. Yes, there has. So a lot of decals too. So you better be careful. Oh God, please! I'm having problems, man. I am having problems. Well, I, I don't have any more yawns. You got any more? Nothing. None more for me. Well, we're gonna let them off easy tonight. You got it. All right. Our special segment tonight is titled A Sticky Situation, and per a listener request, uh, we're going to talk about the adhesives we like to use on our workbench. All right. So, Dave, well, let's start with the obvious one. Okay. And I think that would be our styrene bonding cements. Yes, I was going to say, you can divide this up into areas depending on what you're gluing or what you're trying to glue, and obviously as as polystyrene kit assemblers or modelers like you. I'm a polystyrene kit assembler. You're the, the main thing you're doing is gluing plastic parts together. And the number one glue for me to do that is, to me, is extra thin cement. It's my go-to glue for joining plastic parts, the, the major assembly of plastic parts in any kit together. I like the Tamiya brand, the extra thin, uh, the dark green cap. It just works really, really well. It joins quickly. It gives a hard bond. It does melt the plastic so that you get a nice hard join as just as opposed to just sticking it together. Do you remember the old tube glue that smelled like lemon? Oh, that's the, the non-toxic stuff. <laughs> yes, that stuff From was testers. awful. Yeah, that stuff's terrible. You couldn't You couldn't get parts to stick together with that. Well, so not for, not for long, not for long. So what do you use is to me extra thin your go-to as well? 
Uh, it is currently, but it's a fairly recent development. I still have a bottle of Tester's plastic cement on my workbench, and I and I I've used it, and I still use it, and I I don't know. I'll probably replace this one when it's empty. It's getting close. Uh, it's the last of an entire box of Tester's plastic cement I bought probably twelve years ago. And that was awfully ambitious of you. Did you think you were going to be doing a lot of a lot more gluing of parts together than you thought? I was uh, in cahoots with the the owner of the local mile railroad shop, and I was buying stuff wholesale. So oh. I, bought, I bought a whole carton. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then you then you didn't finish assembling a kit for five or six years. Well, I did a lot of railroad stuff, so I you yeah. know I did burn through it. Yeah. Um, now. This to me, a bottle of extra thin cement I've got in my hand right now is the first one I've ever bought. And I bought this last year. I agree with you. It's good stuff. And the only reason I bought this was because I was working on the E16 Paul and my seams kept splitting. And I, I didn't feel like I was getting a good bond with with the testers liquid cement with whatever polystyrene Fujimi happened to use on that kit. So I went and got the extra thin. Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. Now the the other thing I use to assemble polystyrene is uh well it used to be 10x7r but uh uh I don't think they make that anymore. I get it as flexophile plastiweld. I've been told a number of different things about what it is. Let's put it this way, it's some sort of toxic chemical brew. <laughs> it may or may not have methyl ethyl ketone in it or MEK, but what it does is it melts polystyrene. And by melts, I mean melts. And so what it's great for is using one of those flexophile needle applicators filled with this plastiweld. You hold the two halves of the of the fuselage together, or two halves of the wing, and you run the the plastiweld down the seam, applying slight pressure on the two sides of the fuselage, and it melts the it the 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 stuff is viscous, so it runs down the the it's drawn down the the seam between the fuselage halves. You press it together, and as it melts the plastic, it creates a, a slight ridge of melted plastic. And then when it dries, you come back, you just cut that off and hit it with a quick swipe of sandpaper. And it's it's about the best there is for eliminating a seam. So I like to assemble fuselages, particularly long fuselages, using that flexophile plastiweld. And sometimes I'll do it in sections. I'll do a couple of inches, press it together. It it dries very quickly, very similar to to a gel super glue as far as drying time. So you know, I'll run it, press together, hold it, give it a few minutes, then do the next section and the next section, and eventually do the entire spine or underside of the fuselage. I like the stuff for that. Now, the only thing you don't want to do is get a drop of it on the surface face of the model because it melts the plastic and so you'll give yourself a, a a nice little scar that has to be buffed out and sanded out if you if you accidentally get a drop on the regular surface of your model 
So do you think it's pretty equivalent to the old 10X7? It Yes, it's very, very equivalent to the 10X7. Again, like I said, I don't know what it is. It's some sort of chemical toxic witch's brew, but uh, it it really does work like nothing else. And when when 10X disappeared, I was uh, I was mightily disappointed uh, and was happy to see Flexifile come out with their version of it. Yeah, that whole box of 10X at one time, too. <laughs> well, you have to make sure you keep the caps on tight. That's the other thing you need to do with this plasto weld, too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Is any of these things, you need to keep the cap on really tight because this stuff evaporates like nobody's business. Yeah, right and out you of the could, bottle. Right. You could walk into a hobby shop and they'd have a box of like the 10X 7R and you lift up the bottles <laughs> and at least two out of six would be half full because the cap was slightly loose and it evaporates. Yep. That's what happened to a lot of mine. I ended up combining bottles at some point. Yeah. I used to use that a lot too, but now I can't get it. So I, I've been wanting to try the the stuff from FlexiFile. I just haven't done it yet. Any other plastic cements you ever use? Well, the one thing I do use on plastic sometimes to to attach small parts is sometimes I will use super glue. Even though both of the parts I'm gluing are styrene, if I'm trying to glue a small part on in a particular place that needs a particular placement and needs to stick and glue quickly, the liquidy super super glues are, I haven't found anything that works better than that for those particular, those particular uses or that particular use. Well, back to the liquid cements a minute. S- some folks may wonder: Do you use or do I use the uh, the cap brush applicator, or do you use a dedicated paintbrush? Well, one of the things that attracted me to the Tamiya Extra Thin Cement is that it has a dedicated brush that comes in the bottle that has a real point to it. It actually reminds you of a Japanese bamboo paintbrush as far as consistency and point or Japanese calligraphy, a very small Japanese calligraphy, calligraphy brush. I most of the time will use the uh, brush that comes in the Tamiya extra thin cement uh, bottle. But back when I used testers, as you know, those came with that big wide, wide brush. <laughs> and I never, yeah. I never used that. I always used a dedicated old paint brush to apply that that glue well i've got a wooden block on my workbench that's got a whole board in it with a piece of carpet tape at the bottom of it for holding the bottle because that stuff used to come in a square bottle way back yes. when yeah and I've, i got some holes drilled in it. i've got a dedicated paintbrush that i only glue with uh, my problem yep. is i don't have i don't have re- reciprocity with my other paintbrushes uh while i don't paint with my glue brush I've been known to glue with my paintbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, what one of the things that I do with paintbrushes is uh, I do have a dedicated mi- brush that I use for applying Mr. Surfacer. I have a dedicated brush that I use if I'm applying liquid cement or that plasto weld with a brush. I have brushes dedicated to those. And what I try and do is, as I have paintbrushes that I use for detail painting and for stuff like that, that as I've, as they've gotten older and they start not to hold quite the point, uh, 
that I want to use them for brush painting anymore. I will graduate them over to using them for putty application or for glue application. And that's a nice way to do it before you finally just get rid of the brush. In fact, I, I use a dedicated brush for both micro saw and micro set. Well, that's a different episode. I know. <laughs> we veered into brushes. You you mentioned it. And I'll I'll bring it up again because folks may not know, but uh, FlexiFile for years has sold the Touch and Flow applicator for liquid cements, yes. which is what you were talking about with the yeah their with, needle applicator, right? And what that thing is, it's a it's about a I don't know about a sixteenth of an inch glass pipette tube, yep, with a piece of stainless steel hollow tube, even smaller, epoxied into the end of it. Essentially, is yep. what it is. Uh, I've got one. I haven't used it in a while because I haven't been on because, well, I can't get 10 X anymore and I don't think it works as well with tester cement or I haven't tried the no. Tamiya. No, it, it does not work as well with a polystyrene cement as it does with the, because those don't have quite the viscosity that this PlastiWeld or 10 X seven R do. Now FlexiFile sells a, a kit that's got the, the cement and the, the touch and flow applicator and then a, uh, Kind of a siphon squeeze bottle to to load it with, I believe. Yes, and which I don't. I I your wife would be horrified, but I don't use that siphon squeeze bottle. I do something that no one, no one in their right mind should do. Right, which, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not even going to mention it because I'm not going <laughs> to encourage anybody to, else to do that. But uh, uh, yeah, you fill that tube. However you do it, you fill that tube and then capillary action carries the the plaster weld down the, the metal tube onto the model. Now, because it melts plastic, one of the one of the downsides of that is that end of that tube can get some melted plastic on it, and then that clogs it up. So you've got to dip it in the back in the plaster weld to get it to melt so that you can then get the plaster weld flowing again. Well, let's move on to the next class of adhesives we use. And that's probably the cyanacrylates or the super glues. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> How much time do you have? I have opinions. I do too. Now, super glues come in different varieties. You've got everything from extra thin to medium viscosity, to what they call gel superglues. Also, there are activators that you can either brush on or spray on to the superglue once you've applied it, and it it cures it immediately. I do use superglue quite a lot. I almost always use the the thin variety, and it is usually to... Not glue together major parts, but to glue together small minor parts or glue something that's in an awkward place such that if you glued it with a slower setting glue would would not hold it wouldn't cure before it started to move out of place. Yeah, I mostly use it for dissimilar materials. Yes. Yeah, photo etch to to styrene, uh, resin, photo etch to resin, resin to styrene. Uh, also use it resin to resin. 
Yeah. I think it makes a good glue for resin. Now, if you need, if you're gluing resin to resin and you need a really hard bond, then I like, you know, using the liquid five minute epoxies. But if you're doing resin to resin gluing and it's not something that's weight bearing or anything like that, then super glue works really well for those type of joints. With the hobby branded stuff, you can get all the viscosities usually. And even I think you can get just, you know, general thin cement and a general gel type in the, like the hardware store tubes. Yes. The one thing that super glue that has happened to super glue normally is once you buy it and open it after some period of time, the super glue becomes stringy. And when it does, uh, it just, it's useless. You need to throw it away. So, uh, I got away from buying big bottles of hobby hobby shop branded super glue, and what our st- I started doing was going in and to the h- hardware store, Harbor Freight, something like that, or even Walmart. You you can find where they have these small individual tubes of super glue, and they sell like a pack of six of them, and each one has very little super glue in it, just enough to use for a session of modeling and then you throw it away and open a new one the next time you need super glue that way you don't worry about having it go bad now the ones i bought at harbor freight uh, i'm using a tube of super glue that i opened i know not at least nine months ago and it has yet to go jelly or stringy on me and i'm not sure why but this stuff this this stuff is great, and I'll continue to use their stuff if I can continue to find it. Well, I'm all out right now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. Now, yeah, pop over to Harbor Freight and get their their multi packs of both the big and little. I've asked you offline. You know, you're kind of stuck with some of the hobby branded stuff, stuck. Or, <laughs> or maybe some industrial supply place has it, but uh, the accelerators. Yeah. Um. And, and, I, and I asked you, and we'll answer again here for the listeners. Do you find that the like hobby branded accelerators, the Zip Kicker or whatever, who's the other manu- manufacturer? Oh, I forget the one that that makes it in the brown bottle. Um, well, they're all in the amber colored bottles, but uh, yeah. Well, Zip Kicker actually comes in a white bottle. Well, Zip the Zip line's made by Pace Industries, right? Now, there's an, what's the other? I cannot remember. I know what you're talking about, and I don't remember what that company is called. And I'm desperately looking around my desk to see if I have a bottle, but I don't. Hobby shops will put their own sticker on it a lot of times. Right. Yes. Uh, anyway, those two accelerators are almost identical. Uh, yes. They, they probably are. And I was just wondering how they how they reacted to the 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 cheapo multi-pack hardware store super glues. Just like they would with the with their own branded super glues, uh, it accelerates glues, it hardens immediately, uh, no problem. Now I usually, even though they come in spray bottles, I usually apply it with a disposable brush, one of these things that you can buy, uh, either eyeliner brushes or these little bottle end applicators that you can buy by the hundred off of Amazon. And I will usually dip 
the accelerator, the, the brush and the accelerator, and then I will touch it to the super glue very quickly because you don't want it to, to glue the end of the brush to the super glue, but we'll apply it very quickly like that as opposing to use as opposed to using the sp- actual sprayer. Yeah, I'd never use the spray. In fact, I don't even have the spray top on my bottle. <laughs> I just that's just too much. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I do it a little differently. I'll I'll use a paintbrush and and put it on the surface somewhere away from the glue joint and then let gravity flow it down into that. What's your favorite way to put the glue on though? Um super glue, I use the and I have to credit Jim Bates with this. On Amazon, they sell in hundred packs these very pointed eyeliner brushes, disposable eyeliner brushes that uh, have a black handle and a real, really, really, really fine pointed brush at the end. Uh, and you can buy a hundred of them for like five or six dollars. And so what I do is I put a little super glue on a, a piece of marble tile or, you know, anything that you can use as a disposable palette. And then I'll take the, the eyeliner brush, dip it in, because that'll, that gives me a very fine control over where the super glue ends up. And one of the things you don't want is in general to have super glue where you don't want it because it's very easy for when you're gluing two parts together, let's say a photo etch part to a to a styrene part. If you get the super glue in the wrong place and then the two pieces touch, uh, you've got something that's glued where you didn't want it. And if you're lucky, you can debond it and get it off, but not always without damage. So I, I prefer to, to try and make a very fine application of, of super glue. Well, I mentioned it way back in a past episode, and the listener who requested this topic actually brought it up. Uh, I use a piece of brass wire stuck into the grain end of a, a long stick of balsa, like a pencil. Yes, you had said that. And I like doing it that way because I can pick up just a tiny bit on the end of that brass wire, and then when it starts to beat up, I can just clip it off and yeah. like, get a fresh tip. So that's the way I put it on most of the time. Now, now. You don't use one of those super glue applicators where they take the, like a sewing needle and clip the eye end of it in half so that you get a U shape. I've tried that. It it seems to pick up too much glue to me, but. I think it picks up too much and I don't think it comes out very well. I I agree. I never had any success with it. Somebody else may have better luck, but I, I just, I've never, ever favored that. Now, you know, I don't have any super glues right now. I need to go get some, but uh, do you, do you keep a debonder handy? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, speaking of which, one more thing about the zip kicker. And I know I've told the story before. If you get super glue on your fingers, whatever you do, do not get a uh, zip kicker on it. Those instant accelerator because, uh, Super glue drying quickly is a very exothermic reaction, meaning it generates a ton of heat and you'll, it'll burn your skin. And I've done that to myself. So yes, you, you definitely need to keep debonder uh, around and handy because 
at some, not only are you going to occasionally glue a part in a place where you got the location off, you know, it's, it's a, a, a sixteenth of an inch to the right or a sixteenth of an inch to the left. And it, it's obvious that you, you didn't get it exactly where you needed it. And debonder is necessary in order to try again. One trick that you can use with debonder is after you've super glued a part onto the model, if there's excess super glue around, you can take an old brush. And again, this is another thing where you, you want to have a dedicated old brush that you've, uh, you know, that's seen its, its usefulness. And, uh, you know, you clip the tip of the brush, get it, get it a little bit more scrubby. And then you can dip that in debonder and then rub it around the model where the excess super glue is. And it will actually remove that without removing the super glue from the two parts that are put together. And in fact, the, the dyed super glues, the super glues with the black in them, either because they have rubber, ground up rubber bits or some sort of carbon dyeing are really good for gluing together because you can see where the excess is because of the black standing out on the model and then use the use the brush and the debonder to remove that off the model whereas if you use a clear super glue sometimes you don't see there's excess because it's clear until you prime the model and then it's like darn uh <laughs> I didn't know that was there, and now I have to clean it up. And now I've already put paint over the super glue, so that makes it harder for the debonder to work. So, uh, colored super glue is, I think, really useful, particularly when applying photo etch to uh, to plastic pieces. Yeah, so if the super glue is, that's what I use it for mostly: photo etch, uh, other dissimilar materials. Not not my favorite stuff. It just always has a knack to not bond when you need it to, and yeah, bond when you don't want it to. Yes, <laughs> for for and, whatever and, reason, Murphy's law, if nothing else. Right. Well, and there is an alternative two step process that that I've found for me the work sometimes is if I'm trying to glue something fiddly onto a model that really requires a super glue application to get it bonded to the model solidly. A lot of times I will use either a drop of future or a little bit, a, a small drop of PVA glue or gator glue to put the glue on, on the model where I want it. Then I'll stick the photo etch to it and that future or that PVA glue will have enough stickiness to allow the part, the photo etch part to stick to the styrene part. And then I'll come back with a very thin super glue and run it around the the part to make the bond solid. The the adva- the other advantage of that is the PVA glue or the future lets you adjust the location of the part and then once the part is in the exact location you want it, then you can run just a very thin super glue around the edge of it to solidify it in place. Well, I guess kind of the next class we use from time to time is a normal, you know, 20, 30 minute epoxy or, or a five minute epoxy. I don't use those a lot. Boy, you can make a mess quick with those. 
Yes, and and uh, in a mess you can't undo. And it clean it doesn't clean up that well, in my opinion. No, uh, I I completely agree. I, I just I usually keep it on hand, but typically when I'm using that, it's 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 finding its way into the project either through the groundwork or yes. some 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 other kind of course construction, not not the model proper. You know, if I'm gluing a a building to a diorama base, yeah. Yeah, five-minute epoxy, because I know that, first of all, it doesn't have to be a super neat job, but I need it to stick and stay stuck, and it's not going to come off come heck or high water. And it it gives you the time to adjust the placement to get it just right. But as far as model assembly, the only time I can think of that you might use it would be a – resin on resin construction where you're trying to stick two hefty parts of resin together. Let's say you had a resin aircraft kit and let's say you have a resin wing to fuselage joint. Their uh, five-minute epoxy might well be your glue choice because you're going to get a really good solid bond that's not coming apart and the glue gives you enough time drying time to be able to adjust the dihedral or the anhedral of the wing to get it set the way you want but in general it's not a it's it's not anything i use on a model yeah the t- the two part epoxies you know i talked about the cleanup issues when when the stuff's uncured after you've mixed it together you have you know leftover of the unmixed constituents and you get it on your cutting mat or corner of your desk or a tool Ugh. or something. It's a sticky mess and you can but that can be cleaned up a lot of times with isopropyl alcohol. Right. Before it's cured. Yes. Once it's cured, it's a completely different animal. Yeah. There's a product called Attack, A T T A C K and it is a epoxy resin glue remover. So it's made for removing it after it's cured. Chemically, it's a very nasty stuff, and I don't think it's compatible with plastics. I, I know about this stuff because I, you know, I, I talked about some fantasy miniatures last time. Um, I'll buy these old, old school fantasy miniatures, and sometimes they'll be glued together with a really crappy two part epoxy job. This stuff's the only way to clean them up, really. Yeah, uh, nasty stuff evaporates faster than ten x. Not recommended. I, typically, <laughs> I, I, I avoid two part epoxies. For the yes. most part, I think I, I yeah. don't use them very often. Yeah. So between the epoxies, the solvent, plastic cements, and this, the CA glues, the super glues, what else? What else should folks have in their arsenal? The one other thing that I think you've got to have some form of is PVA glue. What we think of as white glue or Elmer's glue, and it's it's not a strong glue. It's a slow drying glue. It's not something you use to assemble uh, kit components, but it is something you use to say one of the big uses of it is to attach canopies to aircraft kits. Uh, PVA glue has the advantage of drying, generally most PVA glues have the advantage of drying clear. They also give you time to adjust the fit of something. So it gives you time to 
put the canopy on and adjust the fit of it so that it's sitting just like you want it. And it has another additional advantage of being uh, slightly gap filling. You can use small amounts of PVA to make hairline gaps disappear. I don't use it for, like I said, I sometimes use it to attach a piece of photo etch temporarily to a model before I go back and hit it with uh, super glue or some, some, uh, you know, more strong glue. But uh, attaching canopies, um, gluing together delicate parts that are under zero stress uh, sometimes that's called for, but, and then of course, there's a version of it, uh, micro crystal clear, where you can use it to actually make clear windows and clear landing lights in 72nd scale and some 48 scale aircraft, depending on the size of, of the window you're trying to, to make. The, the PVA I keep on hand is, uh, one you can find at like the larger big box craft stores like Michaels or Hobby Lobby here in the United States. It's Elaine's Tacky Glue. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like an Elmer's on steroids. It's just a, a, I think it's a stronger glue. And again, mostly I'm using this in like course construction and diorama work, basic groundwork, stuff like that. Good to have on hand though. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got something called, and this is Pacer, uh, the Pacer product called Formula 560 Canopy Glue. And I also have uh, a uh, product out of UK by a company called Deluxe called Glue and Glaze. Yes. And Glue and Glaze, it both acts as a PVA glue, but it also acts as like micro crystal clear and is very good for creating those windows or landing light, you know, anytime you need a clear porthole or a clear rectangular window, the the stuff works really, really well for that and dries super, super clear. It's not so new now, but it's, it's new to a lot of people still, I think is some of these acrylic glues. They're white when they're, when they're wet, but uh, they dry clear, uh, but they're not, uh, they're not a PVA. They're, they're, they're an acrylic hobby glue like Gator's Grip. Is the yeah. one that's sold in the hobby. And then you mentioned a new one this week. Yes. Uh, Ammo MIG makes something called Ultra Glue, which appears to be that type of glue. In fact, uh, I was at our model club has Saturday build sessions, and several of the modelers there had it, and they really, really liked it. Apparently, it's kind of difficult for our local hobby shop to get now. And frankly, I have zero experience with it. All I know is that modelers in our club have it, have used it, and they like it. And I'm probably going to go out somewhere on the internet and obtain some of it to give it a test, see if it's something that I want to put in the toolbox. And I'd love to hear if we've got listeners out there who have utilized that product, I would love to to hear from them what their impressions are. Well, not so much for model construction, but for holding parts while they're being painted. Uh, sometimes, you know, if it's something heavy like a metal miniature or or a big chunk of resin, I keep a roll of uh, carpet tape around. Yeah, I see you use carpet tape a lot. You use it on those popsicle sticks when you're holding the 
the ammo crates that may not be mentioned anymore. No, that wasn't the carpet. Carpet tape is pretty aggressive. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend sticking thin styrene parts to something with carpet tape. Uh, That's going to end bad for you probably, but uh, something heavy, big, heavy chunk of resin or white metal, something like that, that, you know, I, I, I mount these metal figures I'm painting to balsa wood handles using carpet tape. And, uh, I like it. The other tape that you were seeing is from scotch. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just their yellow. It's their, what they call their permanent double-sided tape. Now it's not permanent for attaching plastic parts to popsicle sticks by any, any means. Uh, I use this a lot too. It's, it's, it's the yellow, the yellow package tape from Scotch. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, there's no layer to peel off of it. It comes off the roll double-sided without having to take right. anything off of it. Real convenient. Uh, I use that all the time for temporary, temporary holding of parts. I'm working on and painting good stuff. Well, I don't know that I've got any others. Do you No, I think that's, uh, pretty much all the he- the adhesives that I can think of that are regularly in my arsenal. I would like to hear from the listeners if there's something that we don't know about, something that we've missed, something out there that that people utilize, uh, even if you just utilize it for special, special uses, special particular situations. I'd love to expand the toolbox. So if there's something out there, please write in, email us, and, and let us know what what your experience has been. All right. Well, that wraps up our special segment. All right. Well, that wasn't as sticky as I thought it was going to be. No, it wasn't. Well, Mike, I, I'm I'm down to the last sip of my modeling fluid. Uh, how are you doing? I finished mine before the special segment started. Oh, my. <laughs> so how, how was yours? Uh, it's excellent. It's a well-balanced IPA. I recommend it if you're down in Johnson City area. So those listeners down in the Tri-Cities area, Tennessee, go by Johnson City Brewing and get you some of this or any of their other brews. We brought home another one. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe I'll save it for next time. But uh, Apollo 13. Uh, Do you cool. know the a- the ABV on it? It's 5.3. So it's not, okay. it's not too too Not too top. aggressive. No, no, no. It's a good one. I like it. Well, good. Good. It's always good to have a good modeling model uh, fluid experience. How's the cider working for you? You, the, the, I'll tell you what. This is very, very good. I think I probably slightly still prefer the Ace Pear over the Ace Mango, but Ace Mango is a close second. Now this is five percent alcohol by volume, so it's something that you can drink uh, light enough that you can drink it while you're doing uh, yard work, stuff like that, it would be particularly good in the spring and summer because it has that fresh mango taste. I like the taste of mangoes, so I like it. If you don't like the taste of mangoes, you probably wouldn't like it. Uh, Yeah, I I can highly recommend this. We're getting to the end here. Do we have some people we want to shout out? I do. I'd like to shout out our latest financial contributors to our efforts here at plastic model mojo uh rob hallinger tim cavalier and matt dyer have all made some contributions since uh, last episode uh either through patreon or through our paypal direct link uh you can get to those by going to www.patreon.com slash plastic model mojo or just going to patreon.com and searching for plastic model mojo in their search function there you can contribute uh, a recurring contribution monthly. We sure appreciate that in any amount you like. 
most appreciated. And if you'd rather do it one once, one time, one and done, or, or manage your own kind of ongoing contribution, you can do that by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right-hand corner of your screen, you'll see a heart icon, which goes directly to our PayPal link and will let you make a contribution there. So we've had a good run this year. We've had a lot of contributions. It's all gone a long way, uh, helping us bring the show to you, helping our keep our equipment squared away and uh, our hosting paid for. Very much appreciated. Everybody out there listening has been very generous, and uh, I hope you keep it up because it'll keep us going for a long time. Yes, thank thank you to each and every one of you. Um, my my shout out is to the members of the Military Modelers Club of Louisville, my our home chapter here here in Louisville. We had a model meeting in November, and then we also have every Saturday morning from. About six o'clock to noon, a, a modeling build session where people just come, bring what they're working on, and everybody works together on these long tables. I got to go to the meeting and I got to participate in a Saturday session, both uh, within the last uh, two weeks. And I'm telling you what, the interactions with the guys in the club who are some just great modelers great guys. I learned new stuff. I learned about these uh, glue that we talked about, uh, the Ammo MIG Ultra Glue. Got to see somebody brought in a set of these new Easy Tracks from that company called Easy Tracks. T-Rex Studios. Is it T-Rex Studios? Yes. Okay. T-Rex Studios and got to watch one of our modelers assembled some of those and, you know, take a close look at them. One of the club members who is, who taught soldering for years is going to help me with a project that I need some uh, metal soldering on and I've never done before. And so they're a great group of guys and, and I appreciate their friendship and I appreciate uh, them being there and being so open and helpful. So MMCL is a great bunch of guys. And if you're anywhere close to Louisville, consider joining the club. We'd love to have. All right, Dave, we're getting long here. We better wrap this up. Yep. Yep. Getting to the end of the time. You know what they say, Mike. So many kits. So little time. All right, Dave. Well, we'll see you next time for episode 53. You got it. Can't wait. All right. Bye-bye.